Thank God for the talented young people in this church. It's amazing. It's really amazing. There's a couple of families that have young people that are just <laughs> really amazing people. <clears throat> I want to welcome you. Do I need this? Okay. Think kind of threatening, you know. <laughs> I want to welcome you all here this morning, and especially our visitors and first-time people. There's a few people here that came uh, for me just to hear just to hear me. Imagine that. <clears throat> so welcome to everyone. This is the last installment in our series, the Timeless Ten. The Timeless Ten being the Ten Commandments, and we've been studying those for some weeks. And uh, <clears throat> many of you uh, have, did you remember when you went to school and you had review, you know, you, you take a class, then you get a review, and then you get a test, and you had the day of the review, you remember that? How, how many actually went to school? Is, okay, okay, never mind. So uh, we will hear some things in this message that we've already heard before, but that's all right. It's called um, repetitive reinforcement. You didn't think I knew a word like that, did you? Repetitive reinforcement. That means you hear things over and over again, just like the Israelites heard Scripture, sang them, put them on their forehead, put them on the door. You hear it over and over so you remember. And so that's fine. Uh, I was supposed to have a Scripture for the message, if you notice in the bullet in this blank it said many so I'll have many scriptures but Psalms 19 and if you'd like to go there Psalms 19 or I'll just read it you don't have to Psalms 19 verses 7 through 9 it speaks about the law verse 7 says the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple The statutes of the law are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. All of those things speak about the law, judgments, commandments, statutes, all of those are things about the law. And they're righteous, and they are right. Remember, Gerald said, that, and it talks about the fear of the Lord. Gerald said at one point that the Israelites were out at Mount Ararat, and Moses is going to go up and get the law. But before that, and I never heard, I never really considered that. I guess I heard it, but it didn't sink in that God actually spoke to the people. And what happened? Well, here's a big mountain, and it's got a cloud, and it's got lightning, and fire, and everything around. What would you do? Here's what you would think. You would think Ghostbusters, right? Wow! A whole mountain full of fire and smoke and lightning. But then a voice comes out and speaks to his people. I think I'd be afraid, too. And so, in their fear, though, they said to Moses, well, you know what? We don't think we can take that. We don't want to do that very often. So why don't you go talk to God and come back and tell us what he said, and then we'll obey what you said God said. Right? 
See, I thought like he did that Charlton Heston just went up on the mountain. He got those stones and he came back down. But it, it wasn't that way. Before, he talked to his people and it, it frightened them. They were afraid. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. So how'd that work out? That thing about you go talk to him and you find out what he wants and come back and tell me and then I'll do it. Didn't work out too well. They failed. Uh, and as many people have failed, and what they were really trying to do was they're trying to take away the actual interaction with God. Put a man in between us and God because we don't fear him. We won't be afraid of him. Whatever he says, and it's a whole lot easier to murmur against him than it is to murmur against God. So, faced with what God has revealed about us, you know, and how we are depraved and what we might do. Remember the reading this morning that the pastor did? All those things. You know, we might get caught up and do those things. Even after we're saved, we still have this old nature that wants to sin and take us away. We must know what sin is uh, so that we can be moved to repentance. That's what the law did. It told us what sin was. And so, by the law was the knowledge of sin. So, today, we're reminded today uh, that the commandments are to be torn down. Let's tear them down. Let's remove them out of everybody's view. Take them somewhere and hide them so no person will have to face the righteousness of God and our failure as a people to live up to those precepts. We're just like Israel. You know, take them away. I don't want to have to see them. That's the ungodly are doing that and saying that. They clamor for years now. I remember when it started, probably started with school prayer maybe, or the commandments. You know, get them, get them away from the public. Don't make us have to see them. You know what the real crux of that is? The real crux of it is that God said he is the only one true God. Jesus said, I am the way. There's not another way. There's only his way. There's what is known as the exclusivity of Christ. There's a big word for you. The exclusivity. He's the only one. There's no other way to be saved. Half of the people hate that they want to believe something else they've got another faith they've got another religion they want to believe they're going to be saved some other way the other half of the ungodly they don't want any god at all they don't want to have a god for themselves they don't want any they don't want to see anything they don't want to know anything they don't want to be reminded so as the scripture said that the pastor read they don't even like to retain the knowledge of God in their minds. They don't want to know there is a God, and they don't want you to tell them there is one. So the ungodly have tried to remove every remembrance of God from everywhere that we go. Uh, school prayer went, public display of the commandments in government buildings and grounds. And even like a nativity scene, 
Can't have that. Can't have a nativity because it talks about Christ. And we want to be able to have all the other religions would have to be represented if we're going to be fair. So, as they removed all these things, and imagine this, even from courthouses, which is where our laws are administered, and they were taken from the law of God. All those precepts went into the laws that we have today. But let's get rid of them. So they needed a good reason. So why would we have to remove them? People said, what do they hurt? Why, why does it hurt you to have to see the Ten Commandments? Why would I have to remove them? So they came up with something. It's a perversion of the reality for which this was conceived. It's called the separation of church and state. Right? That's what they came up with. You can't do that. We've got the separation of church and state. I don't know how many people I've seen do that. Get up and do that. What is the separation of church and state? What was that all about? Actually, it was placed in our Constitution so that the government, the state, could not impose any one religion on all of the people. That's all it was. It wasn't so you couldn't put up any certain religious things and people would have to see them. The example would be like the Church of England. That's where the pilgrims came from, right? In England, because there used to be total Catholicism, then they got a, had a king who wanted to commit adultery, and he wanted to have as many wives as he had coats to put on. But the Catholic Church wouldn't allow him to be divorced and marry another woman. And he finally got so aggravated that he said, here's what I'll do. I'll just change the religion in this whole country. And so he invented the Church of England, which said, hey, the king's okay. He can get divorced. So he changed that whole country's religion. Today we've got countries like, for instance, Iran, where Islam is the government. That's who runs the whole country, people from the religion of Islam run that government. And that is the religion, the only religion they want to allow in Iran. It's bow down or die in that country. This is what we were trying to keep from when we came up with separation of church and state. But in our scripture reading, we heard that there was people... A description of these people, lost people, depraved, totally depraved people who just do not want to retain God in their knowledge. It's not hard to see it today, is it? It's every day. It's on the news. It's everywhere, these folks. The God-haters in our country have worked real hard to exchange freedom of religion to freedom of from religion we don't want to see religion at all well sadly uh, the efforts to shield everyone from being exposed to the righteous nature of the one true God they're not limited to the ungodly because modern churches today 
are engaged in a much subtler form of extracting the expectations of a righteous God, and that's what they are. The laws are expectations of God for his people, but they want to extract those. They don't want to have to see those. They don't want to be reminded of what their sin is, and so they want those extracted from their people. Here's what they want. Remember that scripture about people having itching ears, just wanting to hear little light subjects? That's what we have today. They just rather hear self-improvement sermons. Get better at being better. Uh, That's what it is, you know. And what does that do? It just leaves God out of the picture. You don't need him. If you're just going to improve yourself and get better and nicer and you're going to attain something, you're going to get to a certain place where you're just a whole lot nicer. What do you need God for that for? You need a self-improvement series. That's what you need. One example of how, here's how Bible teaching gets perverted and and falls to this uh, type of thing. A Bible teaching uh, concerning dispensationalism. Have you heard that word? Dispensationalism. Uh, It's a valid study in Scripture. Dispensations is studying the dispensations of man in Scripture, and it refers to a period of time during which man is tested in respect to some revelation of the will of God. God gives you a revelation. You're being tested of how you are, uh, how you are responsible and what you do about what was revealed to you. So you 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 receive a divine revelation regarding your conduct. That would be like in the law, your stewardship, and regarding your responsibility. To obey God. See, we have a responsibility. When we hear what God wants, we're responsible to obey. Right? My mom always said, you're responsible, bud, because I told you what I wanted. And you should have responded to it the way I told you. And what could I say? That's all I could do. I was just there cringing. And that's what happens Uh, You get a revelation. Now, this is in this teaching, and and I'm going to tell you at the end that there's nothing wrong with studying the dispensations of man. They're there in the Bible. But it gets perverted. There's a little time period where the revelation that he gives you is dominant. It's the most dominant thing in the testing of man's obedience to God during this one period, okay? Okay. The study concept of God's dealing with man in in differing time periods is a good study. We study Adam and Eve, right? That's the first dispensation. They were innocent. It's called the dispensation of innocence, okay? Do we study it? Yeah, we look at it. We look back at it. We, We see what happened to them, how they responded, and what happened after they did respond. Remember? They got a revelation and a command. Don't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. So what'd they do? They failed. They ate of the tree. 
what happened. At the end of every dispensational period, there is a judgment. What was their judgment? You're out of here. They were cast out, right? They had to leave. They couldn't be in the garden after God took care of their sin. So, uh, we find out that there are many periods like this, like in Noah's time. Remember how the people were in Noah's time? And at the end, there was a judgment, the flood, right? So, there's nothing wrong with this study. So, the problem comes when people reason in their own minds and they conclude, excuse me, that since a dispensation has come to an end, that the responsibility to the test of your conduct regarding revealed expectations for us is over. Did you get that? If the dispensation has come to an end, well then, that's... We can take that right out of the Bible. We'll go in the back room and put it in the archives. And if we ever want to get it out and study it, we will. Like the law. Many people want to just take everything that talks about our responsibility to the God, remove it, even in churches, remove it so that we can just have those little those little preachings, those little sermons that don't bother us. That's all they want to hear. But God has never changed his mind about his people attempting to live up to his precepts. You can see it all through the Bible. You're supposed to be trying to live up to what you've heard from him. And there's no excuse for not doing it. Many have said, here's what they say in churches. Well, we're not under the law, we're under grace, right? So the law, now we can just take it and put it away. We don't have to pay attention to it at all. The penalty of the law of sin and death has been put away by Christ, who fulfilled the law for us. However, you don't see anywhere in Scripture where you're supposed to... There, there's, there's no expiration date on anything in Scripture. It, it's all good to go back and look into and for us to learn from it. But we would rather hear, we're not under the law, so I don't have to hear that. And, you know, he knows we're not perfect. And he knows we're going to sin. We just can't help that. We just, you know, what are we going to do? We're going to sin. He just loves us anyway. Isn't that what we're told? Okay. Let's look at Romans 6, 14 and 15. If you want to turn there. Romans chapter 6, 14 and 15. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 14, he says this. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. That's what they, that's what they said, right? I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. But did they read the first part? 
Sin shall not have dominion over you. So if you're going to say that I'm going to sin anyway because I just can't help it and God will forgive me anyway, all I got to do is pray and ask for forgiveness and then I just keep going on and on and on that way. Notice what he says in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Or your scripture might say, God forbid that we should even think that in our minds, that we can just keep sinning because God's going to forgive us anyway. We're living under grace. He'll just give more grace, and we just can't help it anyway. That is what is taught in some places today. Here's the the point that I'm trying to make in all of this that I'm saying about the law and about... uh, the grace of God which has saved us from our sins. From our sins. The point here is that no one in this church, not me, not the pastor, not Gerald, not Nathan, not anybody in this church is trying to drag us back under the law. That's not what's happening here. Because we get the law out and talk about what it was and the expectations of God for his people doesn't mean we think we ought to live under the law. We are saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. So, remember though, 2 Timothy 3.16. In 2 Timothy 3.16, you probably know this, and maybe you could recite it. All scripture given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable. All scripture given by God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So then we find that the law becomes a schoolmaster. Scripture says, to bring us unto Christ. By the law, we know what sin is. And he lists so many of them, very specific. Okay, on to thou shalt not covet. That was all free. It's, I won't charge any extra for that. Just all of that before, was, now we're down to the sermon, right? Get us out of here by 2 o'clock. <clears throat> No. (laughs) Exodus chapter 20 is where we've been taking the laws from, been reading the laws in Exodus 20. And we get down to the final one, number 10. Thou shalt not covet. Now, there's a word we don't use much in our vocabulary today. We don't talk about coveting. You don't hear people say, well, don't covet. You know, we, we just don't use it. So, so we don't really, you know, we don't have a real good understanding of what it means. But he instructs us here and names several things that we're not to covet. Even more than the other uh, things in the law, he names what not to covet. Don't covet your neighbor's house. Don't cover, covet your neighbor's wife, nor 
his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor his Cadillac, nor his boat. Oh, that's under the anything that is your neighbor's. Uh, See, you're not supposed to covet. Now, we get mixed up here. The commandment is not to want things. Don't want something, you know, because we want everything, really. You know, we see things. I want one of those. So it's just that he's telling us here, don't want your neighbors, the one that he has, you know, specifically. That's what he's talking about. Uh, There's a reason this commandment has been saved to the very last, I think, because it's at the heart of all the other commandments. Coveting. It's the launching pad for sin. Coveting. It's the root cause of many of our sins. So what is covet? What is it anyway? So you got to tell me exactly what you're talking about. Ephesians 5.5 says in one part about covet, it says a covetous man is an idolater. Well, Jerry, you didn't help me. Now you went from covet to idolater. I don't hear that much either, and I'm not too sure what that means. Does idolater just mean statue maker? You know, make little people and different little things. No. No, he's talking about a heart condition that is an idolater. A covetous man is an idolater. 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, because they become idols to you. Those things that you set your affections on become idols. How can you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and really you love everything in the world as much or more than him? That's what he's trying to point out. When our affections are set on worldly things, uh, and how could you love your neighbor as yourself? Remember those two? He says, love the Lord your God. And then he says, and the second one's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And the whole law is contained in there, he said. If you could do that, you wouldn't need all the others. You, you wouldn't commit adultery with your neighbor's wife if you loved your neighbors yourself, would you? No. Uh, if you love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind, how could you do that if you're loving all the things of the world? That's why he said that. Because you love the things of the world more than God, he says you're an idolater because you've set those things up as idols. I'll do whatever I have to to gain those things. I just need them so bad. I just want them so much. Ask yourself this. I was listening to a a, a fellow on the radio this week, and he said this about this subject. Ask yourself if you spend as much time thinking about God as you do worldly things. That's a cringer, isn't it? Do you spend as much time thinking about God and what he wants for you and what he expects of you 
as you do thinking about all that stuff that you want to get? We all need more stuff. I know that. We all want more stuff. But the scripture says that God knows what our needs are. He knows what we need. And remember, he talked about food and shelter and clothes. All these things. God knows what we need. And he provides those things for us. But then we go beyond. And we talk about what really we want. And we call it what we need. Don't we? Carol and I, my wife, we're always saying, I need, I need, I need. And we laugh at it because we know that's what we do. We act like we need something that's only something we want. And we say that we need it. It's normal. It's not a bad thing. Um, You know, when I was first saved, there was an old pastor. And he talked about these kind of thoughts and stuff that come to you that you get in your head that you think you have to have. And he said, if a bird flew and landed on your head, that would be his fault. That, that wouldn't be your fault. That'd be his fault. That might happen. A bird might come and fly on your head. But if you let him stay there and build a nest, that's on you. And your thoughts are like that. You just keep thinking about... I need this, I want this, i got to have this. And you strive and you work to get things. Um, There's little subcategories of coveting, I think. And I tried to think of a few. What, What are some of the things that covet? Just try to understand what coveting is. Desire. We just have a hard desire for things. We also have envy. We envy what the other guy's got, right? We just wish we had what he has. That's what television advertising is all about. They just show you what the other guy's got, and they say, don't you want this? You should want this. You should want to have just like they have. These people that we showed you on here, these 22-year-old models that look like they fell out of Hollywood, uh, you should have everything they've got. Is it in the New Testament mentioned? Is, you know, we like to bring, the pastor said we like to bring this from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In Luke twelve fifteen, and I'll read it to you. You can write this down if you want to, look it up, whatever. Luke twelve nineteen, and it's in red letters. What's that mean? That means Jesus said it. While he was teaching, he said this. <clears throat> At the end of a long teaching with people all around him, he said this, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. You know, back in the 80s, there was a little saying went around it said, He who dies with the most toys wins. Excuse me, remember that? Jesus is teaching directly against that. It won't help you to die with the most toys because you won't take any of those toys with you. And Jesus said, beware of covetousness. So, notice this. 
<clears throat> about covetousness. Covetousness is not the action that you take to get something. All of the other commandments are about actions that you take. Murder, lying, stealing to get something, right? But covetousness is the heart condition. It's a condition inside of you that causes you to go out and steal and lie and even murder. It causes men to dishonor their self, to dishonor their families, and to even murder. Consider, and I had to chuckle when our missionary said, had something about King David. Because God did say David was a man after God's own heart, right? He's the one that killed the lion. He's the one that killed the giant. He's the one who was king of Israel. But what happened to him? Do you remember the story? David, when his whole army was out to war, he was on vacation. He had two weeks off, and he was at the palace. And as he was... uh, there looking over the parapet, he saw a woman, a beautiful woman, and she was taking a bath. Now, let's face it, she didn't have any clothes on. So, what did he do? He, the bird came and flew on his head, but he began to let it build a nest. And he thought about her, and he thought about her. He didn't turn away, he just kept watching her. And it entered into his mind the lust of the flesh, helped out by the eyes because he could see her. And then the pride of life kicked in, and he said, You know what? After all, I am the king. I should be able to have whoever I want. And so he sent for her, and they brought her to him, and he lay with her, and they had, uh, they conceived a child. Now he's got a bigger problem. What do I do now that I've got myself into this? Well, one sin begets another sin. Trust me, the deeper you go, the worse it gets. So what does he do? He says, hey, uh, send out there to the armies and get her husband Uriah and bring him back here and I'll send him down to his house and give him something good to eat and let him say, Uriah, you need a little rest. Go down to your house. Be with your wife. You know, you, you fought a good fight, so you deserve this. Go on down there. What he didn't count on was Uriah was so concerned about his fellow warriors in the army his other people, he said, they're not here. They didn't get to rest. What did he do? He went down by his house, slept outside on the ground, didn't even go in, and the next day he went back to the battle. Darn it. Foiled again. So what did he do now? It starts getting worse. Now he starts devising a different plan, and he says to send me somebody who's uh, take a message to the to the uh, the one who's running the whole army out there. Tell him to 
get Uriah because he's a, really a good scrapper. He's a good fighter. And he'll get him out in the front and push him right on out there into the battle and then withdraw from him. Why? Because he knew he'd be killed. Murder. He conceived a murder in his head for Uriah, the husband of the woman that he had taken. In stark contrast, what should have happened? Well, at first he should have just turned away. But remember Joseph. Remember Joseph who got thrown in the pit, you know, by his brothers who were jealous of him. And they sold him off to Egypt. And he ended up going to Potiphar's house. And he was so good that he ended up running Potiphar's house. And then the trouble started. Potiphar had a wife. And she had an eye for Joseph. And she decided that she just had to have Joseph. And so she schemed and plotted and tried to trap him. He got away from her once. But then she laid an even better trap for him. And when he came in and was into her quarters, she tried to get him to lay with her. And what did he do? He ran. He ran. That's what we ought to do when we see that we're up against one of these traps of sin. The best thing to do is run. Run. Get away from the situation. And he did. He ran so fast that she grabbed his garment and he ran right out of his clothes to get away. (laughs) Joseph knew what to do to get away from sin. Uh, There's some warning signs. One of the best scriptures that I always love this scripture, and that is that that 1 John 2.15. If you don't have that scribbled in your Bible somewhere, you ought to put that in there because this is how sin comes. Here's the trap with the jaws on it that's going to capture you. Um, Let's just look straight at it. It comes from the latter part of what we've already read which said do not love the world or the things that are in the world if you love the world the love of the father is not in you notice that if you love the things of the world if you are totally taken by the things in the world the love of the father is not in you and he says for all that is in the world and here's your scripture the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, that's not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Remember the other scripture that says, God is not tempted with sin, neither does he tempt any man. He just said, these things don't come from God, They are in the world. These are the things of the world system. This is how it works. This is how you make a TV commercial. You see it. You lust after it. You want it. And then you say, notice at the end they say, after all, you deserve it. You deserve it. Even women's hair color, you deserve it. You know? And so it sparks that same thing in all of us. So, when we come down to the age of grace, and we are saved by grace, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. 
God has favor towards you and you didn't deserve it. It's not merited by anything you did. It's just simply grace. The free grace of God. Now, during the age of grace, so how are we supposed to live here? Is there any commandments? Is there anything we're supposed to do? What's revealed to us? So, since we're saved by grace through faith, then he sets this out for us, a command. Set your mind, and there's many. Yeah, I could have picked all kinds of things, but I just picked this because it sums it up pretty quick. Set your minds on the things of the Spirit and not on the things of the flesh. Pretty plain, isn't it? Don't be thinking constantly about the things of this world, but think about the things of the Spirit. Is there a test of obedience? James chapter 1, verse 22. We're getting to the end, guys. In the book of James, chapter 1, verse 22, he says this. Here's how he expects us to live. Be, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If all you ever do is hear the word, hear the word. You came in on Sunday, I want to hear something good. Back out the door and live just like you did before. That's what he's talking about. Don't be just a hearer of the word. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of a man he was. During this whole series, have you heard anything that kind of stirred a little something in you? Maybe your stomach fluttered a little bit as you heard some of these things in the law and you thought, I've actually sat in church and thought, I hope nobody knows what I know. I hope nobody can tell that I'm not this because I got this nice shirt and tie and jacket that I'm Mr. Perfect, you know. I hope nobody thinks that. But I, I, I wouldn't want anybody to know some of the things over the years that I've said and done. Would you? Well, when that little stirring comes in you, that little thought, that's God trying to talk to you. He's trying to say, that's it. That I just put my finger on it. You felt it. That's the thing. So what do you do about it? Well, there's another word we don't hear a whole lot about. It's called repent. You know, repent. God says, confess your sin and start over again. Go back to the start. And repent of your sins. And in James, when he says, don't be like the guy who looks in the mirror and then just walks away and says, forget it. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, that's verse 25, and continues in it, continues in the perfect law of liberty, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer. Be a doer of those things that you've read. Be a, be a doer of the work of God. 
This one will be blessed in what he does. So I asked myself as I got to the end of this, and just this morning I looked, there was a scripture that was on the internet. We've got a scripture of the day that pops up. She's got it on there somehow. But anyway, I, I pressed on that scripture of the day. wonder if there's anything in there for this message for me. And sure enough, there it was. How am I doing about this covetousness, about wanting so much, about the things of the world driving me and causing me to want and causing me to say to myself, I need that. I really need these things. You want a good test for that? Here's what it said. How much am I giving back to God? Money. How much am I giving back to Him? How much am I willing to sacrifice of what I have and give it to God for the work of the Lord? How much? What's your, what's your ratio there? Keep it for me, give it to God. Pretty good test, really. It's a great way to defeat. If you give in your minds, you set in your minds, I'm going to give, I'm going to give more. I'm not going to just put a little bit in the plate. I'm going to give to God's work. Here's what he said. It's a great way to defeat the idolatry of materialism. If I don't have the money to spend on me and stuff and I give it to God, it's a pretty good gauge of what's happening in my life. Thank you. You want to wrap her up? He's a good rapper. <laughs>